So I have a question I want to start with this morning. I think I know the answer to it, but, but you, never, you never know. Some of, we, we all had different childhoods, okay? But I want to ask this morning, who here has ever been on a really, really long road trip with your family? Everybody been there? All right. All right, now, now and some of you were the kids in that situation. Now, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask the other half of that. How many of you have been on a really, really, really long road trip with your children? Yeah. How was that? <laughs> Byron's laughing, right? right? And it's not that the trip couldn't have been great, right? I'm sure the trip was fun. You got to your destination. It was awesome. But how was the car ride? And I'm not talking about when your kids were teenagers, because then they listened to music and slept, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when, you're, when your kids were, were young and annoying, Right? How was that long car? And by the way, when I say long trip, I'm not talking four hours, friends. I mean 12 plus, okay? Four days. Four. Oh, Bury me. Bury me. All right? So the car trip wasn't awesome. Wasn't awesome. And, and, and I'm going to ask you this. What question did they ask more than any other question uh, other than can I go to the bathroom? What was the question you heard the most during the car trip? Are we there yet, right? Are we there yet? Well, guess what, friends? Since Luke 9.51, we have all been on a journey together. And we've been on a journey to Jerusalem, right? And many of you have been secretly thinking, bringing up that childhood spirit, goodness gracious, are we there yet? How long does it take to get to Jerusalem, Luke? Well, today, like any parent that finally got to take a deep breath, and exhale and answer the question that was asked 851 times in the single journey? The answer is yes. We're there. We're there. Today in our text is the final. It's the final text uh, during what we call uh, Luke's travel uh, series, okay? This passage is the end of Luke's travel narrative, and the very next words that he'll pen will be Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Now, we talked about that triumphal entry, of course, on Palm Sunday. But today, we're going to look at this final travel narrative, and we're going to see what kind of truths the Lord might have for us, okay? Join me in a word of prayer, if you don't mind. Father, um, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. Um, We want to pray right now that in a very special way, you would come and meet with us. God, uh, we try to act and look like we've got it together, especially here in this place for some reason. For some reason, we don't want others to see that we're hurting, that we're broken, that we're in desperate need. But Holy Spirit, come on. You know the depths of us. You know the things we try to hide. You know the sins we try to cover up. You know the faults we pray others don't find in us. And we need you to minister and to teach us at that level, at that gut level, at that depth. So mine deep today, Holy Spirit, come and be our teacher and our guide And as your children, we pray that you would teach us from the inside out. 
Holy Spirit, if there's someone here this morning that does not know you, my prayer is that as they hear this text, that you would woo them unto Jesus. Jesus, be exalted. We are your people. Now we prepare our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm in Luke 19, starting in verse 11. We're going to read through 27. And uh, I'm going to prepare you because I'm going to pronounce something in a second and you're going to think I'm crazy, okay? But in your Bible, uh, as Texicans, you guys have always called this either the parable of the ten minas or the parable of the ten minas. It's neither. The word is Mana. Mana. It's a silent I. I don't know. I don't know. But that's how you say it. That's, that's how it's pronounced. You can go look it up. I checked this week like five times because I didn't like it. But, but so, we're going to study the parable of the ten manas. Okay, here we go. Luke 19, starting verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and he gave them ten ten manas. Okay, each one gets one. Uh, And then he said this, put this money to work until I come back. But his subjects hated him, and they sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and he returned home. And then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your manah has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Uh, Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Wow. The second came and said, Sir, your manah has earned five more. And his master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your manah. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words. Ooh, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his manah away from him and give it to the one who has ten manahs. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Wow. Strong words, especially at the end. We're going to get there in, in, in a minute. 
Uh, we'll get there. We'll explain what we think uh, Jesus is talking about uh, there in a second. But let's, let's start here with the big picture, okay? So Jesus is, is about to enter into Jerusalem. That's, that's what's happening. I mean, we, since Luke 9.51, he's been heading towards Jerusalem. And now he, he's on the precipice. He's about to enter into Jerusalem. And, uh, and, 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 and he is followed by massive crowds at this point. And say, so how do you know that? We know that because of last week, right? The story of Zacchaeus. The crowds were so big that Zacchaeus, a rich man, had to be undignified, had to hike up his, 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 his well, robe, and, and he had to run. He had to run out ahead of the crowds. He had to outrun them. Then he had to climb all the way up into a sycamore fig tree just so he could see Jesus. The crowds at this point in Jesus' ministry are huge. And I want you to understand, they're not just growing in number. They're growing in anticipation. They're growing in anticipation with every step that Jesus takes, with, with, with every yard that he gets closer to his destination. The anticipation of the coming kingdom grows and grows and grows. And, and they think, their belief is that as he enters into Jerusalem, that he is going to become the king of Israel. Okay? Herod, get out of the way. Rome, no more of you. That God is going to restore Israel as a nation. That is what is anticipated. And, and, and we know that because of the text. Look at verse 11 uh, here. It, it, it says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them this parable because... He was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. That is why Jesus tells the story. He tells the story because the people have misunderstood. And so the point of this parable must deal with the misunderstanding of the crowd. We've got to keep that in mind as we interpret it. So let's walk through the parable. There's a nobleman. It says, man of, of, of noble birth, and he's going to go away, and he's going to go away to a distant country, right? And there he is, is, is going to be appointed king. Uh, of course, that, that's got to be speaking of Jesus. That's who, who, who that is in, in this parable. It represents Jesus. And it says that he calls ten of his servants before him, and he's going to give each servant uh, one manah. Okay, and, and, and he instructs them. He's got this instruction. It says, put this money to work until I return. Okay, that is that is literally the task, the task, the instruction. It is clear. Put this to work is what the text says. That's what the master says. The nobleman that's going to be made king says, I am going away. I'm going to give each of you the same amount of money. Now, manah, by the way, is about a hundred days worth of work. Okay, It's not a huge amount of money. Some people think that this is the same thing that Matthew talks about with the parable of the talents. But, but I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, my, my belief is that it can't be because the parable of the talents, uh, each, each one is given a certain amount. By the way, a talent's a lot more than a manna. But, but each of them are given talents based on their abilities, right? And so they're all given different levels, and then they're supposed to do something with it. Here in this parable, everybody's given the same exact amount. 
Everybody's given the, the same exact amount. And so, so listen, this, this nobleman is going away. He instructs him. He says, put this money to work until I return. Okay. And two of the servants, it says, now are, 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 are extremely faithful. Now, probably more because there's only one that's given as a bad example. But two of them, extremely faithful. And the text says each of them is richly rewarded. We'll get into that too. But I want you to see there's one servant that is completely disobedient. He's disobedient. I I don't want you to read it any other way. He's not careful. He's not cautious. He's not avoiding risk. He's not even fearful as he says he is. He's flat out disobedient. His master says, I'm going away. You need to put this to work. And he says no. And he lays it away. He wraps it up. He sets it aside. He's got a disdain for this nobleman. For this master. Now, uh, there's another group of people mentioned in the text too, right? It, it, it says that there is a group of people, verse 14. I, I don't know, do we have verse 14 up there? Uh, there there's, a, there's a group of people in verse 14. Uh, that it literally says, uh, his subjects, there's another group, these subjects hated him. And they sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now, that represents somebody too, right? Of course, that's going to represent the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what we'd call the Jewish ruling uh, class or the Jewish influencers in Jesus' day. And, of course, they didn't want Jesus to be king. In fact, they killed him to try to prevent him from becoming king. Little did they know that Jesus is the only one that had the power to lay down his life, and he also had the power to take it back up so that he could ascend to heaven and be anointed King of kings and Lord of lords. So this is what's going on in our parable. That's the story. And then, of course, these people, verse 27, the bombshell. Jesus says, those people that oppose me, have them brought before me and killed. Now, uh, anybody else hear those words and go, wait a second, that couldn't actually be Jesus talking, right? Seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Well, we're going to talk about that. Hopefully, it'll make sense in a historical context this morning. But what does this text mean for us? What could this passage mean for us some 2,000 years later? We're not Jewish, necessarily. We're not there at the moment. But what does it have to do with us? And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Here's the very first thing I want you to see. Just three things very quickly, okay? The first thing I want you to understand is that we are living in the time of stewardship between the ascension of Jesus and his return, Okay? That, that's where we are right now. We're, we're living, if I had a timeline here and, and we could start with creation and, 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 and we could end with the second coming, uh, that along this timeline, as, as God makes everything, as God forms man in his own image, as man rebels against God, as God recreates everything and we've got the flood, right? Uh, as, as we walk through the timeline of history and we've got all of the prophets and we've got the kingdoms of, of Israel and, and and, and now they're divided, and now they fall. And, and, and as we walk through uh, ca- captivity, and then release, and, and restoration, as we walk along the timeline, and we get to Jesus, right? And we get to Jesus, who, who lives and breathes and walks on this earth for 33 years, who dies on the cross for our sins, is buried and raised again. He appears for 40 days to everyone, so many so that people couldn't actually argue that he had been raised from the dead. And then he ascends into heaven. And from that moment when he ascends into heaven and the church is born in the book of Acts, okay, 
a new phase, a new life of history begins. And that life, that phase of history, it's on the tail end of history, is a phase of waiting. It's a phase of waiting on Jesus to return. But during that phase, as we wait, we're not supposed to be standing around twiddling our thumbs. This period, this time that we find ourselves in, Jesus says, is going to be a time of stewardship. It's going to be a a time of stewardship. Now, back to what I told you about the differences between Matthew and Luke. That's why we believe this is a totally different deal, okay? Now, in Matthew's account, if we're talking about the parable of the talents, each person is given based upon uh, the abilities that they have. And, and, and so everybody's given a different amount, and they're supposed to use the talents and the abilities that they have. And, those, and we've preached that before, and, and, and that makes sense. Uh, and, and then they're rewarded, but it doesn't actually says, say what the reward is going to be. But here, uh, everybody's given the same amount, same amount, and it's, it's not nearly as much as a talent. It's just a 100 days wage. And, 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 and the best producer with 100 days wage turns it in to about 1,000 days worth of wage. So, so it's kind of like you, you get about three months uh, worth of salary, and he turns it into a little under three years. Jeff could run those numbers, probably 2.7-ish uh, somewhere along there, okay? And, 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 and so, so that, that's the best. Now, and, and, then, and then that guy is, is rewarded, and, 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 so, and, and we'll get to the rewards here in a second. So, so I, what, what I'm going to submit to you today is, again, that this is, this is something totally different. This is totally separate. And, 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 and the point that Luke is making here in this teaching of Jesus that he's trying to point out is that every person is given the same exact amount, and of every person, the same task is expected. Let's say that again. Every person is given the same amount, and out of every person, the same task is expected. This isn't about special callings. It's not about use of special abilities. This is something that every man must have in common. Okay? Something that every man must have in common. And, and, and that task, by the way, uh, verse 13, right? That, that task is, is literally, put this money to work until I come back. That's the calling, right? Put this money to work. So the question that we have to ask on this side of the cross is, what is this thing? Right? What, what are we supposed to be doing? Uh, what are we supposed to be putting to, to work? If this is a period of stewardship, what are we stewards over? But we're stewards over Jesus' possessions. What is his possession, right? What is, what is his mission? What, what, is, what, is, what is what he values? And we learned that last week, actually, Luke 19.10, what Jesus values. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and save those that are lost. That's further backed up right before Jesus' ascension in Matthew 28, isn't it? Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I'm going to be with you always to the very end of the age. If you want to read it in Luke's account, you're going to find that in Acts 1.8. Right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you receive power for a purpose. Ready? And here's the purpose, right? So you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, so there's a purpose to the power that we, we receive. Jesus, right, the nobleman that has gone away to be anointed King of kings and Lord of lords, has given his servants that are remaining a stewardship over his possession, over his mission, over his calling. And friends, that's who we are. 
We are called to be stewards of the mission of Jesus Christ. We are called to be people that are about seeking and saving the lost. We are called to be people that are committed to making disciples everywhere that we go, starting with the people next door. Jesus' ascension necessitated that his followers would take stewardship of his mission. Necessitated that his followers take stewardship over his ministry. The reason Jesus tells this parable, that's the very heart of it, right? Is because the people misunderstood the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God throughout the entire gospel. He's been trying to help them understand, yet still, here they are on the precipice. They're, they're finally, are we here yet? Are we here yet? Are we here yet? Jesus says, yes, we're here. But you still don't understand where here is. They believe in this triumphal entry that at the end of it, Jesus is going to sit on a throne and rule over a physical nation. And Jesus says, you misunderstand. Not only do you misunderstand me, but you misunderstand you. I must go away. I must go away. When I return, it's going to be great. You must be faithful in the meantime. That's the point. Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, gave his followers a great task, a great commission. That's what we call it. And that commission is to make disciples, to seek and save the lost, to be witnesses everywhere that we go. This is our primary calling in life. Or maybe I should say, it should be. See, that's the question I think we're forced to ask ourselves. Is it? If we're just going to stop and take honest inventory, is our heartbeat stewardship over the mission of Christ? Or would we say our hardship or our heartbeat is, is comfort, financial security, retirement, just a little bit of health? That's the tough teaching of Christ, right? You say, man, I, I really want Jesus to come back. Man, me too. Times are tough. Yeah, he never said they'd be easy. Where am I? I'll tell you where you are. You are living in the time of stewardship. That's where you are. And he's entrusted you with the greatest mission on earth. If you're here today and you've ever felt insignificant, can I just challenge you for a moment? If you're here today and you've ever felt like you don't have a role in the church, can I, can I just lovingly shake you a bit? I mean, not so much that I hurt you, right? But just, just enough to go, what, what are you thinking? You have been entrusted with the greatest task in the history of mankind to carry out the mission of Jesus Christ. That is your job. That's your responsibility. You've been entrusted. You, you remember, I, I, those, especially men, right? Women, it's like natural for you, right? I mean, it's just natural for you, it seems. Like you, you, you somehow squeeze this thing the size of a watermelon out of something the size of a, of a lemon, and, and, and you place it in your hand, and you're just like, oh, my baby. They, they, guys, do you remember the first time they placed that itty-bitty living thing into your hands, and you just thought, oh! 
gosh. My boys are bigger now. I don't have that same feeling all the time. But you know, every once in a while, my almost 13-year-old walks in the room and I think, oh my gosh. I'm responsible for molding this kid. I need you to remember the oh my gosh moment when you understood that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has given you the greatest responsibility on earth. And friends, I love you. I'm not trying to hurt you. But I think we've got to wake up a little bit. I think we've got to wake up a little bit. I know, I know it's hard. Man, we've got families in our church that are suffering. We should sing that song, Rejoice, like, like until it stops. Un, 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 until God just says, Satan, no more, I'm done. Like Job's period is ended and everything is restored and, and we're, we're receiving tenfold. We should just sing Rejoice every single week here. Like I, I get it that it is hard and I get it that it is tough, but it doesn't change. We are holding in our hands the greatest, most beautiful responsibility in the history of mankind. Let's not forget that. It could be overwhelming, but it's also really cool. (laughs) It's also really cool. Just remember that awe and wonder, I challenge you. Okay, two, uh, I want you to understand this this morning. I have no clue what time. I just looked at my watch. We're, whatever. We're going to get done eventually. It's fine. <clears throat> I stuck to my notes. It'd be great. <clears throat> Two. According to this text, the people that are faithful during this stewardship period, they are fantastically rewarded. The people that are faithful during this stewardship period are are fantastically rewarded. So the nobleman comes back, crowned as king. And and, and he comes back, and and there's a a period of accountability, right? And and so it, it literally, it says he was made king, however, and he returned home. I'm in verse 15. And then, get this, he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money. So, so there's ten servants, he gave them each a minah, he returns back as king, hallelujah, that's amazing, right? I mean, comes back with a crown, and all the splendor, and all the glory, and it's pretty cool, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh dang, <laughs> he didn't forget. So he calls all the servants, and says, hey, verse 15, then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money, in order to find out what they had gained with it. What they had gained with it. Listen, if you're wondering what the one mana is, remember we all have one life to live. We all have the same life. Different spans, still living, still breathing, right? We all have this divine opportunity, this divine response, but so he calls them to account, Right? And, 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 and the first servant, uh, he says, like, what did you do with the hundred days wage that I gave you? And he says, oh, my Lord, uh, turned it into a thousand days wage. It's pretty impressive from three months to almost three years. It's amazing. But listen to the king's response. He says, well done. You know, you've done great with a little bit. And that's all it was. It's just a little bit. He said, you've done great with a little bit. You know what I'm going to do? 
I'm going to put you in charge of 10 cities. What? <laughs> yeah, hold on. I, I only, I, I've only got three years worth of wages. No, no, no. No, that, that was great. You did awesome. 10 cities, you're going to run them. You're going to have dominion over 10 entire cities. Ready? You know what scholars call that? There's a word for that. <laughs> Disproportionate reward. That is, that is disproportionate reward, right? It's like when your kids did a chore, when they were like, like little, and they, like, like they mowed the yard, and they missed all kinds of spots, and you paid them $20. If you were that parent, by the way, that was disproportionate. Uh-uh, listen, I paid for the gas. I feed you. Here's $5. God bless. You want 20 go mow the neighbor's yard. It's called disproportionate reward. The second guy comes. He says, listen, I, 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 500, right? Uh, this is what I've done. He, I'm going to put you in charge of five cities. Disproportionate. And all this is meant to make us think of rewards in heaven. It's all meant to make us think of, of treasures in heaven, okay? This is what I'm going to tell you, guys. God doesn't just halfway reward people that are about his mission. That's not, that's not, that's not who he is. He's not just going to give people that are about his mission a little pat on the back and go, hey, like, like some people think that all the reward is going to be hearing the words, well done. That's going to be great. That's true. Like that, that's what we should long for is to hear well done. But, but then, like, like I think people think that heaven is going to be a hammock. I really think that. I think that people, because let me add this little wrinkle here. Did you notice he didn't say, I'm just going to let you chill? It's not it. We think that heaven is like a hammock with some harps, you know? And I, I don't know about you, but like my dad figured out pretty early on that retirement wasn't all it was cracked up to be. He was bored. Took him about three months to go back to work. Listen. Listen. It's really interesting. The king returns, and he doesn't say, Oh, that's great. Go and rest. He says, that's great. I've got an even, I've got an amazing reward for you. Ready? It's even more responsibility. I'm going to give you dominion. By the way, you know you were created for dominion? You, you read that in Genesis lately? God made you in his image, and he made you to be in charge of stuff. And it was good, the Bible says, to be in charge of stuff. You were made to have dominion. And God says, my faithful ones, my faithful ones, I'm going to reward with fantastic dominion. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. That's the, that's the good side of the coin. Now let's talk about the bad. Okay? It's one group we left out. It's those opposers of Jesus. It's those ones that didn't want him to reign. And, and listen to what it says about them, okay? Our third point is those who oppose the kingship of Jesus will face ruin. Those who oppose the kingship of Jesus face great ruin. So we've talked about the king, we've talked about his servants, let's talk about those that oppose him. Uh, verse 14, but his subjects hated him. 
And they sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Again, that represents the, 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 the Sadducees, the, the Pharisees, the people that, that killed Christ. And, and then uh, it, it ends tragically with this in verse 27, that the king saying, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. And that sounds terrible. I get it. Now, it... It's scholars' belief that this, this, this prophecy here in a parable is actually fulfilled just a few years after it's written. Okay, we think Luke was written somewhere in the 60s. Uh, we, we judge that actually based off of Acts, the last historical information we have in Acts, historical that we can point to. Now, we've, we've probably missed some. It's probably somewhere around 80, 62-ish think that he wrote these things together. Remember, it's part one and part two. A lot of scholars date Luke around A.D. 64, 65. Within five or six years of Luke penning these words, Jerusalem will be conquered by Titus. And the destruction will be terrible. Josephus, the Jewish historian, accounts of 1,100,000 people being killed in a day. The blood in the streets was flowing so great that as they ransacked the city and houses were on fire, the claims are that they were extinguished not by water, but by blood. The tragedy that would befall Jerusalem following that conquest was so great that it was, it was literally laid to waste for years, that people had no way to live, they had no way to survive. Starvation set in. There are horrible accounts of... Uh, horrible accounts. In the book of Psalms, we've read of other accounts that God's people were laying to waste where infants were dashed on rocks. And these people faced a horrible end. Here's what I want you to understand. This is, this is, we want to apply it. Ready? Hell will be a terrible place. This is what I want you to understand. The Bible would teach us that it would actually be better, would actually be better to be one of those people in Jerusalem in AD 70 than to oppose the kingship of Jesus and end up in hell. It would actually be better to watch your loved ones destroyed and ruined physically than it would to experience the tortures of hell because we have opposed the kingship of Jesus Christ. Let the gravity of that sink in. That tragedy of Jerusalem in AD 70 was allowed by God to paint a picture to paint a picture. It's meant to say, if you think that is bad, you would hate to imagine the destruction that will fall on those that oppose the kingship of Christ eternally. Okay? What do we do with that? <laughs> what do we do with this last parable, this last teaching during our travel period? I'll give you a few things. First and foremost, I would say this. If you are here 
and you have not accepted the kingship of Jesus in your life, please do. Can I, can I just beg you? Now listen, I, if you've been in this church any period of time, you know uh, we're not a hellfire and brimstone. My, my, my goal is never to try to scare somebody into heaven, but there are really scary passages in the Bible. There just are. And, and our approach here is that we don't skip them. We just we walk through them together. We, we, so often as we walk through them together, we hold each other's hand. But I want you to understand that hell's a real place. And I want you to understand that people that oppose the kingship of Jesus, people that want to say, no, we don't want him to rule over us, those people will face great ruin. That's, that's the truth of Scripture. Don't be one of those people. I, I, I would plead with you today, like if you're here and you've been fighting the kingship, the lordship of Jesus Christ, would you please surrender today? Please, please let history be your guide. Let it be your teacher, okay? God has something so much better in store for you. Say, Pastor, how do I even do that? It's not as hard as you think, okay? You just need to confess that you've been trying to be the Lord of your own life. I've been trying to be in control. By the way, if that's you, you know it's not working out very well, so stop acting like it, right? Just stop acting like it. Just, hey, it's, it's not working out. Just confess that. I'm sorry. And you say, come take your proper place in my life. Reign over me. That's it. I want to be your subject. Save me. He will. That's all you have to do. You can pray that prayer, okay? Second thing I think the text challenges us to do. I think it challenges us to live as a steward of the returning king, okay? I'm not talking about talents. I'm not talking about abilities. I'm talking about breath in your lungs. Breath in your lungs. If you are living and breathing, which is why you're here today, okay? Otherwise, couldn't be here today. No zombie apocalypses. That doesn't happen, right? Okay? If there's breath in your lungs, then you have a purpose, And not only do you have a purpose, but you have the most amazing purpose. God has gifted you with the greatest responsibility. This is why I struggle to to, to fathom how people in any church could think that they're insignificant or unimportant. I just can't find anything to do. Oh my gosh, what do you mean? You mean like in this building you can't find anything to do? Because that is not what your life is about. I mean, we need things in this building. We'd like you to greet somebody. We, if you can sing, please do that. Right? If you can play an instrument, God, we'll take you. If you can teach, we'll, we'll use that. But if you think that what we do in this building is what your life is about, you've totally missed the purpose. If, if, if you think I can't find a place in the body of Christ, then, then something is wrong because you have been given the greatest responsibility. The church is just here to help you go make disciples. That's the only reason the church exists, to worship God and to equip the people to go and to, 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 to fulfill their mission. That's why we exist. That's why we still meet together. You are special. I'm trying not to laugh because I'm kind of quoting the Lego movie here. You are the most interesting most talented, most incredible thing that God has ever created. And he has given you, he has placed in your hands the most amazing job that has ever existed 
in humanity. You get to go and to tell other people about him. It is the greatest and most beautiful responsibility in the world. Please live like that. It will transform your life. It'll turn off your TV. It'll put you on your knees. It'll get you off of Facebook. It will turn off Fox News and CNN. It'll challenge you to really go out and talk to people. It really, really will. Lastly, I'd just say this. I said it a couple weeks ago. I still think it's important. Find yourself in the story, right? Find yourself in the story. There's a lot of places that you could be. Uh, Maybe today you're one of those people that has opposed him to this point. You heard of great ruin and you're like, don't want that, right? I do not want that. You know what the greatest sin in the world is? Ready? I'm going to tell you. I'm going to let you in on a secret. Some of you think that it has to do with your flesh. Some of you are like, yeah, I know the greatest sin in the world. I commit it all the time and it makes me feel sick. And I can't overcome it. And I feel like I'm not even saved sometimes. You think whatever you're struggling with in the flesh is your greatest sin. Ready? Greatest sin. Pride. It's the greatest sin. God opposes the proud. The people that say, I am in charge. I don't want you as my king. I don't need you as my king. The full power, majesty, and authority of God opposes them. And it ends in great ruin. Would you bow this morning and just say, God, I don't want that. I don't want that. Okay? So maybe that's you. Maybe you're opposing him. Maybe uh, you're the faithful and productive one. God bless you. Listen, if you are, I, I say this all the time, and I, I don't, it's not a joke. If you're killing it right now, and you're really doing a great job at making disciples, will you come see us? Because we would like, give us some pointers and some tips, right? I mean, come be an encourager for other people. Be like, this is what I'm doing. I started a Bible study with these moms, and, and this is how it's going. I've got people in my community. I'm reaching out to people at my office. Like, come share with us what you're doing so we can inspire others with your story. I mean it. I mean it. If you're, if you're that person, we want to know so that we can help others grow. Okay, so please share those stories with us and hope you're that. But maybe, maybe, uh, maybe somewhere along the way, you're the person that just decided to tuck it away. To just set it aside. Now, I know what God's called me to, but I'm tired. I'm done. Be terrible. Be terrible for somebody to serve for so long and at some point just decide that they were dried up and they were done and to tuck it away. And for Jesus to come back and say, man, you missed it. You missed it. I'm going to give that to that other person that was faithful and they kept at it. Follow me. Okay. Okay. I'm going to read this text to you. Last one says this. Then another servant came and he said, Sir, here's your manna. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. If that describes you today, in a moment, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to do something symbolic. Okay? That's all I'm going to say. Pray with me. 
Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word. We've gone long here today, uh, but your word is good and powerful and productive. We need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, just two things. One, I'm going to say this. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not even going to call you for it at this moment. But when we dismiss here after the offering, if you're here and you've never submitted your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you just come up at the end of the service and have a casual conversation. I'll be talking to other people. You just wait for me. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. You just do that. We, we need to take care of that today. Don't wait another moment, okay? We need to take care of that today, okay? So at the end of the service, you do that. Don't do it now. I don't want to embarrass you right now, but you just come up at the end of the service and we'll take care of that today, okay? But I want you, uh, the rest of you, I just want you to do this. Bow your head for a moment and just answer this question, okay? If you're one of those people that you, in truth, you know, you've laid away the call of Christ. Somewhere along the way, you just folded it up in a nice piece of cloth and you set it aside. You just know it. You know it in your heart. You know it, okay? You're not proud of it, but you know it. You even know what shelf it's on, right? You know what drawer you put it in. It's, it's that time when I used to serve Jesus. I've put my time in. I did that. I've, but I've, 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 I've rolled it up. And you've decided somewhere along the way that you were done making disciples with this life. Well, my friends, you still have breath in your lungs. So here's what I want you to do with your hands. I want you to put your hands right in your lap. I want you to put them together. Kind of like you're clasping them together, okay? Clasping them together. And just in a spirit of prayer, what I want you to do is I want you to act like in those hands, you've got a sacred piece of cloth. And in that sacred piece of cloth, tucked away, is the mission of Jesus Christ. The mission of making disciples, the thing that you have not been living for, that you decided you needed a break from. And if you've tucked it away this morning, I'm just going to ask symbolically, slowly, with your hands, would you just begin acting like you're unfolding that piece of cloth right now? Just go ahead, just right where you are. You just kind of open it up. Just open it back up and just say, Lord, I am so sorry. Lord, I'm so sorry. Now pray this prayer with me. Father, here I am, laid bare before you. Help me take up this beautiful responsibility again. God, Give me the awe I once had. Remind me that I am special and that you have entrusted me with the greatest task there ever was. Amen. Amen.